It's been almost one year since Dr. Nikki Salmond and Dwayne Tucker were awarded as the recipients of our 2021 Graduate and Fellowship Awards in Women's Health, and they've been busy. We are so pleased to welcome back Dr. Angela Kaida as the host of this episode. In addition to sharing the history and importance of this award, Angela speaks with Nikki and Duane about what drives their passion for research and what this past year has been like as a trainee working through the pandemic. This episode is being released on September 1st, 2022, and if you are listening as a trainee engaged in women's or newborn's health research, then you might be interested to hear that our 2022 Graduate and Fellowship Research Award in Women's Health competition is live. The deadline to apply is September 19th, 2022, and you can find all of the details on our website at whri.org or at the link included in our show notes. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast discussion today. My name is Angela Kaida. I'm an associate professor and Canada Research Chair in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. I'm also a member of the Executive Committee of the Women's Health Research Institute um, here in Vancouver, BC. I'm joining you today from the unceded ancestral traditional territories of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations. And I am joined today by Dr. Nikki Salmon and uh, Dwayne Tucker, and I will ask them to introduce themselves to you directly. Nikki, do you want to get us started? Sure. Um, hi, yes, I'm Dr. Nikki Salmon. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of British Columbia. I work in Dr. Williams, uh, Dr. Carla Williams' laboratory in the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Thanks, Nikki. And Dwayne? I am Dwayne Tucker. I'm a PhD candidate um, at UPC in the Reproductive and Developmental Sciences program, though by the time this airs, I would have transferred to the Women's Plus and uh, Children's Health Sciences program in September. But yes, I'm a PhD candidate here and I'm a part of the Endometriosis and Pelvic Pain Laboratory, um, being primarily supervised by Dr. Paul Young, but I'm also co-supervised by Dr. Aline Tal. Thank you so much. And we're so happy that you were able to join us today. So uh, for all of the, our listeners, uh, Nikki and Dwayne are the 2021 recipients of the Graduate and Fellowship Research Award in, in Women's Health. And let me just give a bit of background about these awards. And then um, as part of today's podcast, we're really excited to learn about the work that both of them um, are doing uh, their journey as trainees during these uh, pandemic days, um, and learn about what you know, what how we can better support trainees and the important research that they're engaged in. So let me just start by uh, by sharing with everybody that, of course, women's health research is critically important. Uh, women continue to face numerous barriers to healthcare, to health, to general well-being. We've known for many years now that most clinical guidelines for prevention, diagnosis, and treatment do not differentiate between men and women, despite differences in how they may respond to medications, how men and women and gender non-binary people may access care. And this insight, this lack of, of oversight and this lack of um, investments in women-centered or, or, or women's health research has very uh, profound implications. We know that these oversights lead to very detrimental health outcomes. 
Um, and so the Women's Health Research Institute is one of only three research institutes in Canada who have an explicit focus on women's health research. And we are passionate about the importance of women's health research, recognizing that when women are healthy, all of society benefits. So within the work of the Women's Health Research Institute, we have a strategic plan that's focused on trainees and mentorship. And the purpose of this plan is about expanding capacity for women's health research through initiatives that are supporting the next generation of women's health scholars. And so um, in 2020, we launched the Graduate and Fellowship Research Award in Women's Health. And the purpose of this award was to create an annual funding opportunity that's specific to our trainee community. And this award provides salary support to WHR affiliated graduate students and postdoctoral fellows who are engaged in women's and or newborn health research under the mentorship of a WHRI investigator. And each year we've been really proud to fund at least one graduate level and one postdoctoral level award. So Dwayne and Nikki, as I mentioned, are the recipients of the 2021 uh, awards. And we really want to thank the, women's, uh, the BC Women's Health Foundation who generously fund uh, these awards in support of our trainees and the next generation of scholars. And you can learn more about this award and how you can support this innovative work by uh, checking out their website, bcwomensfoundation.org. So um, having given this background, let me turn it over to our two awardees today. Um, and Dwayne, maybe can I start with you? Can you tell us a bit about your research area? Uh, yeah, definitely. So um, I'm doing endometriosis research and uh, endometriosis is a complex condition that is characterized by chronic persistent pain. And so being a part of the endometriosis and pelvic pain lab, my project focuses on predicting pain related outcomes after endometriosis surgery. So primarily for my research, I'm looking at two outcomes of interest. And the first one is pain related quality of life um, and um, reoperation. And so the rationale behind my whole project is that um, though surgery is an effective treatment for endometriosis pain, we still have a portion of women who experience no relief after surgery. So uh, in fact, it's 20 to 38% of women who experience no relief after surgery and approximately 50% undergo reoperation within five years after the initial surgery and some having as many as 10 surgeries. So these statistics are alarming and so the decision to perform surgery should be made judiciously yet there are no validated methods to predict surgical success or outcomes after surgery and so my research um, targets this gap in the scientific and health field and seeks um, to identify factors that can help estimate who is more likely to benefit from surgery so we can help reduce unnecessary surgeries and better tailor endometriosis endometriosis pain treatment on an individualized level. So essentially aid the surgical decision-making process between patients and uh, clinicians. My goodness, Dwayne, thank you so much. That is so fascinating. And as you say, those statistics are alarming. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you're undertaking your research? Like a bit about the methods that you use? 
Ah uh, yes, um, happy to. So, so for my work, I am incorporating clinical variables from the EPIC registry, and EPIC stands for endometriosis and pelvic pain interdisciplinary cohort, um, which is a project that my my team has ongoing, and it collects data from patients who visit our clinic at the BC Women's at BC Women's Hospital to investigate long term patient outcomes, prognosis, predictors causes and treatment of pelvic pain and endometriosis. And so this is really a major strength um, in my particular research um, because uh, an issue that we've been having and seen in the literature is though you have previous studies that have attempted to um, identify predictors, there really is a lack of standardized ways in collecting the data. And so there are no reliable um, um, predictors. And so this is a major issue, but we have a whole project that's dedicated to collecting um, data for these purposes. And um, so my, my project includes clinical variables as well as um, biomarkers as, as well. So I'm looking into five potential uh, pain markers. Um, and two of these are cancer markers that um, have been found in endometriosis tissue in patients without cancer and um, also found to be found in more severe and invasive endometriosis. And so I'm also investigating whether these markers are associated with pain severity and whether they'll help to predict um, pain-related outcomes after surgery. So in terms of methodology, um, I'm incorporating a lot of machine learning. Um, so we're trying to, we, we want our, mo our models to be as accurate as possible. And so in today's scientific and technological world, machine learning is really the way to go. And so, yes, I'm incorporating lots of machine learning um, uh, in, in, in my work and a lot of pathology as well. It's just fantastic, like just to to hear that you have, you know, it, your your research takes advantage of methodologies commonly used in isolation and really bringing them together to sort of realize the potential and, and power of, of what we can get when we mix those two different methods, like what we can use. So it sounds like your research is going to have clinical implications, but also you know, methodological innovation. Yes, yes, most definitely. And I, I didn't say this before. I don't know how familiar our listeners are, but machine learning is a subcategory of artificial intelligence that refers to the process by which computers develop pattern recognition or the ability to learn from and make decisions based on data continuously. And so um, it's really an exciting part of my project as well. And one that is like driven by my co-supervisor, um, Dr. Aline Talhook. Um, and it's just really exciting that we're able to bring all those different disciplines together to just push um, women's health research forward. Thank you so much, Dwayne. I'm going to come back to you because now you've, you've made me have a, a lot of follow-up questions, um, but I'm going to come back to you, but I, let me switch gears for a moment and, and let's hear from you, Nikki. Uh, we'd love to know more about your research area as well. 
Sure, um, no problem. Um, I'd just like to start by saying, again, extending my thanks to BC Women's Health Foundation for the opportunity um, for this fellowship. It's a real privilege, and without it, this project wouldn't be given the time and attention it deserves. So I just want to extend my thanks for that as well. Um, so yeah, my research, the overarching theme of my research, I guess then, is how we can better understand how we can successfully treat breast cancer or better treat breast cancer. Um, I, in an ideal situation, a combination of early and efficient diagnosis um, in combination with improved treatment options would increase the rate of successful treatment of breast cancer and improve the quality of life and long-term prognosis. And these are still two big topics that we're still trying to, to work on and improve. My project then focuses on improving, on hope, well, I'm hoping to try and improve the treatment options available for women with breast cancer, and in particular, women with a specific type of breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer. So I think it's, uh, it's one of those uh, things where it's, we have to be, it's important to think about breast cancer not as a single disease but as many different types of uh, diseases um, and some of them are much harder to treat than others. For example, uh, you may have heard of breast cancer subtypes that are ER positive or HER2 positive and what's good about, well not good about them, what, what is a positive about them is we have specific targeted treatment strategies available for these cancers um, and they tackle their cancers by targeting the ER or HER2 pathways, which we know drives the growth of those cancers. So that's a positive impact in that we have an improved treatment options for those, those cancer types. But on the other hand, patients with triple negative breast cancers are not equally benefited by having targeted treatment options available. And therefore it's a, bit, a little bit harder to treat successfully. Um, so my research aims to develop a new targeted treatment option that could be used to specifically treat triple negative breast cancer to improve the chances of successful treatment. So triple negative breast cancer then, it is, how prevalent is it? Well, it's about 15% of all breast cancer cases, approximately. Um, as we've said, it has no targeted treatment options, so we rely on the traditional chemotherapeutic options, radiotherapy and surgery. And what the problem is, even though initial treatment might be successful, it's very common for the cancer to come back um, a year or multiple years down the line. And once it has come back, it again becomes much harder to treat, um, especially as we are limited to the traditional chemotherapeutic agents. Interestingly, though, we know that over 80% of triple negative breast cancer tumors have a mutation within a cell destruction protein that would normally suppress the tumor growth if it was acting appropriately. And because of that mutation, the protein doesn't work properly and the tumor can grow unchecked. Um, so what we hope to do is turn this tumor suppressive pathway back on. Um, and so the cancer cells can initiate a suicide mechanism and undergo cell death. So the plan is to develop a unique nano delivery system whereby we can restore the tumor suppressive pathway in triple negative breast cancer cells. Uh, specifically and ultimately destroy the tumor and hopefully developing one of the first targeted therapies for triple negative breast cancer patients and improve the treatment and prognosis, long-term prognosis of those patients. This is absolutely fascinating research and I think to just hear you talk about the create like the creative pathways of targeting um, specific genes, specific proteins. I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about your your methodology. Are you working with 
cells? Are you working in the human body? Like just a little bit more about the methodology. Yeah, so I'm, um, it's very much cell on a cellular level, it's cell based. Um, so this early stage of research, we're basically culturing our triple negative breast cancer cells, which once upon a time were derived from real triple negative breast cancer tumors. Um, and I'm culturing them in plates and trying to manipulate the environment uh, they are they are living in and to try and deliver um, messages to them to turn this tumor suppressive pathway back on. So yeah, it's very much on a cellular level for sure. Fantastic. And where, Nikki, are you at in your in your research? Where am I at? So it has been kind of how oh, seven months, I think we said, since I some of these projects were started. Um, and it's been a journey. I've learned new techniques as well. I've been learning from some experts um, in the field how to formulate different um, delivery vehicles. Um, and we've kind of we've, we're getting some success with uh, delivery of, of certain information to ourselves, of messages to ourselves. And I'm at a critical point of the research now where I'm trying to create, make the creative step to um, it being able to uh, specifically and efficiently deliver these messages to these triple negative breast cancer cells without causing too many problems in terms of without causing too much toxicity and things like that. So yeah, progress is definitely uh, being made so far. Amazing. That is just, and thank you so much for the way, the way you're describing your research is so accessible. And, and I wondered whether, you know, I, I don't know very much about breast cancer, so I'm going to ask this question. Maybe our listeners might be in the same boat, but do women, when women um, who are given a breast cancer diagnosis, are they told, you know, you have triple negative, um, triple negative breast cancer? Are they, is that information shared with women at that time? Yes, it definitely is. Um, they will test the, the tumor um, after, sur after surgery um, using histological techniques and decipher uh, what kind of proteins these breast cancer cells are displaying. Um, and yeah, this kind of uh, this diagnostic kind of strategy will be important to determine the treatment that the person will then receive. And yeah, it normally will be shared with the patient kind of what's going on and, and why they're receiving such treatments and things like that. Yeah. Incredible. And that's just an important part of the way you're, you're communicating your research so that women who are given this diagnosis and maybe learning that the treatment options are not as favorable uh, per se compared to other uh, types of breast cancer to know that there is active research happening on this front. Oh, yes. Yeah, definitely. And many, many other researchers are also trying hard to rectify the situation for triple negative breast cancers. Absolutely amazing. Um, and so I think, you know, a, a general question for both of you is, you know, if you if you look ahead in terms of where you hope your research leads to, what kind of change or action your, your research leads to, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts? Like, where where do you hope uh, this this work takes us to next, and maybe Nikki, I'll keep with you, and then and then Duane, I'll come back to you. Sure. Um, so yeah, I think in terms of this project, as uh, it is, I hope it gets to a point where we can uh, kind of try and get some more funding at the end. So this obviously this is a years long project, and um, it's not going to go crazy far in that time, but hopefully we will get to a point where we can then go, okay, we can continue this project and get some more funding um, and continue it and 
develop it into a therapeutic eventually. Um, and this is a process that takes quite a lot of years, you're talking 10 years minimum normally for developing new therapeutics into a clinic. But it's hope, hopefully it's hoping that one day some of this work, if not this exact work, will go some way towards improving the options available for triple negative breast cancer patients um, and therefore improving the life expectancy, the long-term prognosis. So we should be able to effectively treat people with triple negative breast cancer. And the hope is that one day we'll be able to cure it as well. And it's um, that's the main aim with any um, kind of therapeutic uh, development in breast cancer for me. Hopefully something will end up helping in the future um, to prolong the lives of people diagnosed with the disease. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's about it for me. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, because I think the opportunity to see, you know, you know, this is the larger goal and these are the steps that we need to take to get there and, and really thank you know, th thank the BC Women's Foundation, as you said at the beginning, for like investing in these these steps. Like we have to start, uh, we have to start essentially, um, and really you need to understand the problem, and then start with these innovative, creative steps that take us to this significant impact uh, pathway. Exactly, and yeah, and that's what's so important about the being able to be funded for these startup projects. Is without that funding, they wouldn't come to fruition and you wouldn't know whether it will turn into something important that will change people's lives. So yeah, it's super important. Thanks so much, Nikki. And Duane, I'm gonna to come to you with the same question um, because you, you, know, you really outlined how, um, like how much endometriosis impacts so many, like a large number of women, and then even surgery as a, as, a, as a treatment or a therapeutic still does not resolve pain for so many women. So can you share with us your thoughts about, you know, where, where do you see this research leading to, right? Where, where is the next steps of this work? Okay, yes, I would, I would love to. So um, I would say next steps. Short term first. Short term is for us to validate our results and validate our results um, in a population outside of the BC women, just to make sure that our information is generalizable and able to be applied to people from different populations, right? Um, and long term, we're hoping to develop a clinical decision aid um, that would hopefully help to, um, to be added to the treatment guidelines, gynecological treatment guidelines, and just giving an additional tool that will aid that surgical decision-making process um, between both patients and, um, and, uh, and clinicians. Um, yeah, so I think that is our long-term, our long-term goal. And hopefully it will help to uh, just sort of mitigate some of unnecessary surgeries and um, the psychological stress that comes with having to do repeat surgeries. So hopefully we're able to identify people who are more likely to benefit versus those who are less likely to benefit and help to target um, auxiliary treatment for those um, people for different types of pain management. So. Yeah, that is our long-term uh, goal. I really appreciate your, you know, your conceptualization of the of the problem and the solution. That it includes both 
you know, really saving women for whom the surgery may not be helpful um, and may cause other types of stress that, that like it's all, it seems very centered on the woman and the patient and, and the benefit, uh, how to, you know, maximize her benefit. And for some that might mean that surgery is not going to be benefit. And so I just appreciate the kind of holistic thinking um, and, and really centering the women and, and her best outcomes as part of your research. Yes, thank you. So I'll, I'll ask you a, a, a question that's just sort of coming to me that I'm very curious about now that you've shared your, your incredible research and your vision is really about how did you get involved in this area of research? Like what motivated you, you know, Nikki, to be focused around um, triple negative breast cancer and the, the treatment options? Is there, um, yeah, is there anything that you, you want to share about that part of your journey? Sure. Um, so I have always worked in cancer research since for all my career. So for over 12 years, it's something I've always been very interested in. Um, and I guess it's different types of cancers I've worked on. It hasn't always been breast, but in this particular this postdoctoral um, position, it's a very breast cancer uh, orientated lab. And it's so inspiring, the projects that my supervisor has on the go, really looking at so many different aspects of breast cancer um, and how it could be, and how it acts and how it metastasizes and how it can be treated. It's, uh, it's been a real uh, amazing learning curve, learning a lot about breast cancer. Um, I guess my motivation for triple negative breast cancer comes from, there's always the need for something new to happen. It's, it's just, other breast cancer subtypes have got support and they, a little bit more is understood in how we can target them. And for something like triple negative breast cancer, there's that big unanswered question as to how can we specifically target these cells, um, these tumor cells and not, and not give the patient too many side effects like chemotherapeutic agents would, um, because we're specifically looking at those triple negative breast cancer cells. I think there's a lot to unravel um, and that really motivated me to become kind of focus my attention on this particular subtype. Thank you so much, Nikki. And Dwayne, same question for you. Um, sure. So what's interesting is um, I actually started off my journey, my PhD journey doing cancer research. I was doing prostate cancer research. Um, and because um, my master's is in oncology and for some time I saw myself doing cancer research. But I would say that um, endometriosis chose me um, and this research area chose me. I came across Dr. Young and um, after having several discussions and um, seeing that he's a cis male in women's health research and how passionate um, he was about endometriosis research and just the quality of mentorship that he provides um, for his students. Um, I, def I wanted to work with him. I wanted to work with him. I wanted to um, work in the same research field as him. And I started to research more about endometriosis and I was surprised how many people I knew who were suffering in silence with the disease. And I just felt like, okay, this is my, this is my purpose. This is my area. This is my area. Um, so 
this that's how I got into um, endometriosis research. That was the main impetus that sort of pushed me into doing this um, research. I so appreciate both of you sharing these these stories because we are connected to our work in different ways than just as as academic researchers. There's um, often, as you both shared, a lot of meaning behind the research that you're that you're uh, undertaking. And so I really want to sh thank you both for sharing that. And Duane, I, I love that language of endometriosis research chose you. Um, I really, I really like that. I, that's very evocative. So thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I actually now want to shift a little bit in our conversation because as, as you know, a postdoctoral fellow and a PhD candidate, you've surely done a lot of the work that you're engaged in through the ups and downs of the COVID-19 pandemic and the public health protections uh, that were put in place and, and navigated those protections through your work. And certainly at the WHRI, we undertook a survey um, back in 2020 where we asked trainees engaged in women's health research about the ways in which the pandemic was impacting their professional, academic, and personal lives. Um, you know, we, we, we've done a, a previous podcast about those findings as well, but you know, certainly, and this won't be a surprise to you, but trainees really shared with us a lot of their concerns about their career trajectories, the ways in which their research might be slowed down or have to change course or having multiple you know, other responsibilities, many of them taking on COVID-related research responsibilities. And then generally, of course, like navigating this training pathway under all of the other pressures that the pandemic placed on our lives. And I wanted to just ask you, if you don't mind sharing, just what, what's been your experience as postdocs and graduate trainees um, navigating the pandemic as you try to pursue your own research questions? And maybe Duane, I'll, I'll switch here. Can I start with you on this one? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, I would love to start. So. Uh, as it relates to, I guess, unique challenges as it relates to my research. Um, so as I mentioned earlier that my research, um, I guess, extracts data from two different avenues. So there's the clinical and then there's the biomarker pathology type of work. And so for the pathology um, work that I, I'm doing, it required some type of knowledge transfer from the previous PhD student um, and to, to get some training in the area. And um, because of the lockdowns and the restrictions, I wasn't able to have that sort of training. Um, I believe it was perhaps the last two weeks before that PhD student were to leave that we were able to like get in into the lab and um, do some type of like training. So that was a huge barrier for me, but luckily I also work along with a pathologist. And so she was able to um, just start to offer some mentorship and training in that area um, as well. And um, I guess just outside of that, um, it was just difficult to navigate work um, remotely. I had just joined my team um, at the beginning of the lockdown. So hadn't 
met anyone from my team in person and um, was still new to Canada. So trying to navigate how everything happens normally in Canada, but everybody else was trying to figure out how to do things remotely. So it made everything difficult, um, but I guess um, we've kind of made it through it. Is it safe to say that? <laughs> well, we made it here, so that's good. That's, that's that we can feel good about that. My goodness. So yes, certainly, Dwayne. Like um, we did see in the survey that, particularly for international students, this was an extremely difficult time. So, you know, congratulations and kudos to you um, for for navigating through what would already be challenging as an international student, starting with a new lab, etc., and then adding. Um, the chaos of the pandemic, public health restrictions. Um, and Nikki, how about for you? How is how has the experience been? Um, yeah, so kind of similar kind of um, thoughts to to Duane really. So a large proportion of my work is wet lab. I need to be in a laboratory to do the work. So um, when the the pandemic started, it shut down our labs for over three months. Um, and even after that, we were only allowed back part time to maintain social distancing for another good four months, I think. So it really slowed down research project progression. Um, I was kind of lucky with the initial kind of lockdown that I was able to write. So I kind of wrote a grant. I wrote a couple of publications which are now published and um, that was really lucky at the timing for me, I guess, that I had stuff to do and stuff to keep me uh, proactive and productive while I was not allowed in the lab. Uh, but definitely research projects should have been finished by now, for sure. I'm still working on. Um, but I kind of, as a far, I, I kind of going back to what Dwayne was saying as a foreign uh, trainee, as a, someone I had actually been here for a, just over a year. So it, I was at least settled in and, but you know, you still don't have that vast network of family and friends around you that, um, that you would normally be used to. And having then also your work colleagues cut out of that social interaction you're normally used to, it was very isolating uh, for sure. And, um, it was really hard in terms of applying for work visa extensions as well. Like they, the immigration timings ended up being very long and there was lots of confusion over health, whether healthcare can continue while you're waiting for visa decisions. So yeah, I totally understand where Dwayne's coming from with kind of being a international, from an international student or trainee. Um, it did make it extra challenging. I think there was a few extra challenges in there. Oh my goodness. I mean, the structural barriers that, you know, that you are navigating and that folks may not know about, right? That is as trainees and as postdoctoral fellows, as you're trying to get this incredibly important research done, um, just sort of the, the back, can I call it the background noise uh, for lack of a better word that you're navigating um, to come through that. I think that just really, to me, emphasizes again, just how much trainee support is essential, right? This is the next generation of scholarship in women's health research and just really continuing to invest and maybe increase investments um, in trainees 
especially through this really challenging time. And, and I wondered whether, do you, do you have any advice as you've sort of sat with this, this time and, and thinking about your research and your journey, do you have any advice that you would share with other trainees, maybe those who are thinking about, you know, should I be pursuing a PhD in women's health research? Should I be pursuing postdoctoral training? Any guidance or, or thoughts that you might want to share with the, that community? Um, Nikki, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, yeah, I guess when I was thinking of this question, the most important thing I could, I really can think of and, and what's really, I've learned a lot throughout my PhD and my postdoctoral position so far is, um, is communication is the most important thing to help things go smoothly. If you like, like, I think when you're in a in doing your PhD or your postdoc or and I guess this will definitely carry on throughout your career in science so you you come into kind of feeling overwhelmed there are so many things to do there is um, many different things to think about and with the pandemic coming into play as well the communication becomes that much more difficult um, but I always feel like just talking to somebody putting it all on the table whether it's your supervisor or your partner or a friendly postdoc in the lab like me is they like, I'm always happy to talk to anybody because it helps to make everything just seem a little bit better you can break it all down into digestible pieces and you can move forward relatively easily I think and that's in the pandemic if it was to happen again where we weren't allowed to work it I would work so much harder at maintaining open lines of communication between me and my supervisor and me and my work colleagues as well like um, I think that's so important uh, to maintain your own morale and productivity and, and the teamwork that goes on in a lab is so important as well. So when I was thinking about this question, I just kept coming back to communication as the thing that has always helped me the most. So I guess going back to what you were saying, if you if someone was considering doing a postdoc in women's health, um, I think it's a great idea, but talk to it would help to talk to people about it, talk to those potential supervisors and talk to those people that work in that lab. Um, um, you can always reach out to anyone that specializes as well in the field you're interested in. And most people will be happy to chat and communicate. Um, so, yeah. I think that's really fantastic advice. And if I can share from the survey, the Women's Health Research Survey that we did on COVID-19 impacts on trainees, a key loss that trainees were reporting on was what we sort of termed informal networking opportunities, that loss of just sort of being around other people in the lab and those impromptu conversations that happen before and after meetings, et cetera, that Zoom kind of doesn't really facilitate as well. Um, so I think that advice that sounds very proactive, right? That, you know, reach out, ask questions, introduce yourself, you know, try to meet PIs. Um, and that research, the research community is very receptive to that. Absolutely, yeah. You would expect to hear back from people. Just drop an email. I'm sure you'll hear back. And it's definitely worthwhile doing, I think. That's really great advice. And Dwayne, maybe let, let me ask you the same question. Do you have any advice that you would share with trainees considering women's health research um, uh, for their PhD? 
Well, yes, um, sure. For the first thing that I'll say is if you're considering to do a PhD in women's health research, yes. Um, if you're passionate about it, if it's something that you want to do, yes, definitely go for it. Um, women's um, research is uh, definitely, um, it definitely needs to be prioritized more and we definitely need more research warriors to progress um, um, different areas in women's health research. So I will definitely say yes to that. Um, I agree with, with, with what Nikki Nikki said um, with communication and um, I would also say it's important to find your community and identify um, potential mentors um, and um, as it relates to supervisors um, I agree as well to reach out to um, students that are being supervised by um, said supervisor slash um, mentor because I believe that that trainee supervisor relationship is really key in um, being successful in graduate school. So I would say that as well. Um, also look for mentors that are just in the scientific community. Um, utilize some of the platforms that already exist to network and, and sought to achieve this. So there's the social media platforms and there's, there's Twitter. Um, um, I find that academics, um, it's really love Twitter. <laughs> They're really active on Twitter. So it's a great place to just sort of have different types of exchanges. Um, I found my, I during the pandemic, I started reaching out to people on Twitter as well. And I actually got um, to do a free course that I was really interested in by reaching out to a very renowned um, professor in the field of predictive analytics and I really wanted to take the course and just by reaching out I was able to um, um, get into that course um, for free so yes expand your network um, don't be afraid to ask questions don't be afraid to reach out to people to get as much information um, that you need so yeah Thank you so much, Dwayne. That is such great advice and, um, and such great, both of you are giving, uh, I think our listeners like some just great initiative, like just, just start the process of reaching out and you don't know um, actually where that could lead you to. And there's, you can feel a bit of vulnerability as a trainee or as a postdoc to do that. But I think both of your stories today have been very encouraging about, you know, the benefits of just, of just putting yourself out there, meeting people in your field or meeting people in the field that you want to be in and how important that is. So as we come to a close today as for our podcast, I wanted to give both of you an opportunity to share with us if there was something that you wanted to highlight for your, our listeners um, from your field of research, from the work that you do uh, before we close today. So Nikki, I'll, I'll maybe start with you. So there, for the field of research I'm in, we have so many exciting ongoing projects in the lab. Um, and several are being very close to publication. So there's nothing There's nothing I can report just now, but I think watch the space, they're all come, they're starting to come, so. <laughs> Fantastic. And of course, just a reminder for our listeners, like these uh, awardees were given uh, their award only seven months ago. So, you know, we expect um, amazing, wonderful things from you and, and where you're at in, in your journey so far. So certainly the call for Watch This Space, we will definitely be doing that. 
Um, and so Dwayne, for, from your side? Um, so yeah, currently working on a manuscript as well. Um, really excited about that. Um, so hopefully by the time this airs, that would have been published. Um, but I also wanted to, I guess, highlight some of the other things that my lab does as well. So um, for endometriosis month is in March. So I, I guess this is just sort of, I guess, kind of early, just throwing that out, um, that we have a celebration of hope um, ceremony um, each um, March. So I would like for people to just sort of put that on their calendars, hopefully. And for more um, information on what the, my team does, um, could go to our website. It's the younglab.med.ubc.com. CA. Thank you both so much. We're really um, genuinely really excited to see what we all learn um, from the research that you are engaged in um, and, and how this work is going to benefit uh, women's health here and around the world. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us today and sharing your learning, your wisdom, um, your process, your, you know, your reflections, your advice with us here today. So on that note, I am going to thank everybody for listening. Uh, for those of you who are trainees or who um, supervise trainees, just to make sure that you all know that we are launching the 2022 Graduate and Fellowship Award competition very shortly. Um, please check out the WHRI website at whri.org for all of the application and deadline details. Um, we hope that for some of you who are listening today that you are the awardees and we will be able to have a podcast with you next year. So thank you so much, everybody. Uh, take care. If you have an idea for an episode or have some research of your own to share, let us know. Send us an email at whri.communications at cw.bc.ca. For more information about WHRI, follow us on social media using the handle at women's research or check out our website at whri.org.